Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Valerie and I want to welcome everybody who is watching today, um, both those today and it's Valentine's Day, so I think we're dressed appropriately for that. Um, and then also those who will watch this at a later time um, through the, the BBA's um, education programming. Uh, hope everybody's doing well. Belly and I are happy to be here. Our First, we'll introduce ourselves and then um, kind of an intro on our topic, and then we'll launch into the substance of our session today. Uh, we are talking about private foundations and rules of behavior. Um, my name is Kelly Garino, and I work at Fiduciary Trust Company. I'm part of the Trust and Estates legal team here. Uh, in that role, I work with outside counsel such as Valerie and others at um, attorneys at law firms and, and clients, other um, advisors um, on their estate plans and um, issues that they might have with uh, trust administration. Um, Fiduciary Trust Company serves as a corporate trustee, so I'm often involved in, in issues that um, concern that. My connection to the nonprofit world um, so comes from that estate planning side, and um, where that connects is often in charitable giving um, with private foundations. And I also spend time with um, Fiduciary Trust Donor Advised Fund program that's offered through Fiduciary Trust Charitable. Um, and Valerie, I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself, and then again, we'll go back to our topic. Great. Thanks so much, Kelly, and echoing your wishes for a happy Valentine's Day. I feel like no better topic to discuss um, than <laughs> private foundations on this, this lovely holiday. So um, again, I'm Valerie Sussman. I serve as legal counsel to philanthropy in the nonprofit sector at Herwitt and Associates. And um, it's really a pleasure to serve, you know, all different types of nonprofit organizations through their various lifecycle events. Um, we help form nonprofits. Uh, we work with them through governance issues and concerns that come up as well as, you know, sometimes dissolutions at the end of their life cycle. And one of the major things we do is work with private foundations and philanthropists who may want to form a private foundation. So definitely looking forward to um, talking with Kelly about all that today, and hopefully you'll learn a little bit more about this interesting type of charitable organization. And if we were meeting in person, we would perhaps, often this is a small enough group, we'd go around and see kind of what each of you are here for. Um, this tends to, again, with the um, in the nonprofit world, we kind of come from different um, angles. Some are tax lawyers, some are corporate lawyers, some are purely nonprofit lawyers like Valerie, some are state planners. So it's always interesting to hear um, where um, people are practicing or if you're practicing in-house somewhere um, or just what your interest is um, for private foundations. This program is one of a series that is the fundamental series for the tax-exempt organization section. And so some prior um, programming focused on, you know, introduction to the nonprofit um, world, uh, choice of entity, and, um, and private foundations fit within 501c3s. So we'll talk about that. Uh, we have two goals for today. And let's see, I've shared the screen and we are going to advance the slides. We practice this. There it is. Um, the, so the two goals, I will focus on the first one, and then Valerie will be doing the second one. So we want to answer these two questions. What are private foundations? So if you hear that phrase, you know why we talk about them differently than other types of charitable organizations. Um, so as part of this, we'll talk about that the default is all charitable entities are private foundations unless you can prove public charity status. So because of that, we'll talk about the public support tests and how those prove um, public charity status, and then touch br just briefly on some types of private foundations. And then we'll shift to the second part, which is um, what Valerie will cover, and that's if we have a private foundation, like, why do we why do we care if we have one or not? Um, one of the reasons is that um, donations to private foundations have different um, charitable deduction limits. They're lower, so it matters to individuals. And then it also matters to the organizations in terms of, of donor those donor limitations. Uh, and then more importantly, uh, private foundations have special rules that apply to them differently than public charities. 
And so we need to be familiar with what those rules are and and how to navigate those. And Valerie will be focusing on on that. So again, the two two sections that we want to cover. So to to start with and kind of how we think about this, um, maybe just think of what we know generally. And just, you know, before we get turned to the tax code, before we turn to these specific rules, when you think about a private foundation, what do you think about? And maybe I'm going to fill this page with um, some different foundations that are, I think I pulled these all from Massachusetts. Um, but as the page fills up or you think about um, maybe some foundations that you know, what are some commonalities or I, I'm fishing for one <laughs> commonality between these? And that, you know, again, if we're meeting in person, I might ask some of you, um, but the commonality is that the funding for these organizations typically comes from one source or um, a few sources. So that um, here, and if we look at all of these names, you can see that there's a number of family names or corporation names. So for many of these, the funding source would be perhaps that one family or that one um, corporate entity. And so that's different than a public charity where, again, at its most basic, the funding would come from a bunch of different people. You couldn't point to one group or one entity that's funding this, this charity. So um, like to start by thinking about that, just again, generally, what, what do we know um, just from our own knowledge and, and, and how these names look? And with a warning that we can't always rely on names. I actually don't know if all of these are private foundations. They just happen to have foundation in their name. And we'll talk about that in a minute also. Um, so with that, let's let's turn to um, the actual rules and how we can identify if an organization is a private foundation. And uh, I wanna mention up front, so we have the slides that we'll go through, but we, um, the BBA has distributed our materials for this um, seminar are an outline, and we won't be posting the outline um, up on the screen, but you have access to that and can follow along with that if you'd like. And then we also have an uh, annotated Schedule A, um, and that um, also is distributed out to you. Um, so the slides today are mostly um, headlines and a few pictures and We've um, put all of the content and the text in the outline because it's so dense and there's a lot of rules. It made sense to, to put that in a separate document instead of trying to cram it all on the screen in front of you today. So moving on then to um, something I met, I said already in the outline, um, the on the first page we talk. It says uh, public charities defined, and we can look to the code. So code section 508 is where we learn that um, all 501c3s are, um, by default, are um, private foundations. And if you want it to be considered a public charity, you have to um, go through some of the things that we're gonna talk about next. So, man, maybe I'll back up just a minute also. If we have the wider world of nonprofits, and the, I believe this was talked about in a prior, um, basics uh, seminar. One category of that is 501c3s. We also have C4s and C5s and other types of, of charitable or nonprofit organizations. Um, and 501 we're talking about today. 501c3s, again, we can divide into two parts. One is private foundations and the other is public charities. So uh, private foundation by default or public charity. And in order to be a public charity, um, again, we look to the code section and in 509A, A1, A2, A3, and A4, it tells us what the exceptions are. So again, default, what are the exceptions to that to show that you're a public charity? Instead of walking through those code sections, I like to organize it by kind of by topic. So using those code sections and reorganizing them, um, the first type of charitable organization that is a public charity are ones that qualify automatically. So these would be uh, entities um, because of what they are or their or the activities they carry out, they um, they automatic you don't have to apply a test, they qualify automatically. So uh, things like churches, schools, hospitals, government units, and then the odd one out is the public safety organizations that almost 
we don't see those as, as often. So again, these are status-based because of, of the category that they are, they're a public charity. You don't need to apply a, um, a public support test to know that they're a public charity. The next one is supporting organizations. Again, um, because of what they are and how they're connected to a public charity, um, they also are public charities. We're not going to cover supporting organizations today. Um, it can be kind of a complicated uh, list of definitions and types of supporting organizations. But for today, it's um, good enough to know that it's another category of public charity. And then the third that we're going to spend a little bit of time on here are organizations that are public charities because they meet one of the public support tests. So again, I know I'm repeating myself, but um, helpful to think about it. You have 501c3s divided into two things. You have private foundations, public charities. Public charities, how, do the, how are you proving that you're a public charity? One, by type, which is qualifying automatically. Two, because you're a supporting organization. Or three, because you have these public support tests. And because we like to complicate things, there are three sub public support tests, and they all have names that are kind of similar to each other. Um, so uh, we will go through each of these, and, and you'll be experts at them when we're done. Uh, the names aren't great, but the and um, each of them have details on how you figure out or how you carry out the test that, that we'll walk through. Um, so the three tests are the 30 three and a third percent support test, um, the 10% facts and circumstances test, and then the one third support or revenue test. So here's the schematic of, of how we think about this. And then let's turn next to these tests. So um, again, just listed them again, and I'm calling these tests one, two, and three, um, but that's just how we're labeling them today. And I found over the years that kind of the best way to walk through this and really understand it, again, in the outline, we have the narrative of, of what each of these tests is. Um, but uh, what we'll do today is walk through the tests with by looking at Schedule A of the Form 990. So if I can do this right, um, I'm going to pull up that. Again, the Schedule A was um, one of the uh, documents that was sent to you. And it should be this one. And let's your screen sharing is paused. Resume share. Let's see if I got the right one. Let's try new share. And I've highlighted schedule A annotated. We'll try one more time. I won't. I won't bog us down too much if I don't get this get this going. Um, I'm just going to minimize this. Pull this up. Say I'm going to share it, and now it's telling me to either resume share or new share. So let's try new share. Hmm. Now I have one screen, two screen, share. Well, unless Noel is seeing this and can give me um, better directions than what I'm following myself, I think we'll have to go back to our, um, um, we can pull out. So I guess my direction would be um, to pull out the, the Schedule A that um, was sent out. Man, I really want this to work. So let's try. Let's try it one more time. Um, I'm going to go at the bottom. I'm doing share screen, and I have options, a whole bunch of them. And what I want is my annotated Schedule A PDF. And I'm doing share, and it's saying it's paused. I want it to be paused. Okay, um, we'll just move on because you don't need to see me do that yet one more time. <laughs> so 
looking at the Schedule A, and again, I'm, I'm just going to hold it up because you should at least see what it looks like. Um, so the Schedule A is part of the Form 990, and the Form 990 is the, um, as many of you may know, is the form that each organization files with the IRS. It's a reporting form to um, report on activities of the organization and um, and other questions that the IRS needs to know. So Schedule A is the one that um, the is where you tell the IRS what your reason for public charity status is. Um, and it says this is the, so the title of the schedule is public charity status and public support. And again, it's filed as part of the form 990. And so the, um, the very front of the form in part one, it says reason for public charity status. And then it has a list of 12 items. Uh, the first six items, as you can see, um, it says the organization is not a private foundation because it is. And then it, it lets you check the box on one of these 12 items. So one through six are all our status-based ones. So what we already talked about, this is a church, a school, a hospital, a medical research organization, um, and again, status-based um, entities that if you check one of those boxes, then um, for a school, you'll attach a separate schedule, Schedule E, um, with some additional information. But for the others, then that you're done. You check that box and you you certify that you're a public charity because of, of that. Um, looking at line seven, you can see that if you check that box, it says that you're saying I'm a public, my organization is a public charity um, because it's an organization that normally receives a substantial part of its in support from a government unit or from the general public. So again, going back to what how we were thinking with the um, the different um, uh, foundation logos as they were popping up. Um, whether the funding for the organization comes from a single source or the general public is what makes the difference. So if you're saying you're a public charity, you're saying that you're publicly supported by a wide variety of, of donors. And so what the public support tests do is um, look at um, where your public support comes from and what those numbers are. So if you check number seven, that'll be test number one um, that we talked about. That's the 33 and one third percent support test. If you check and then uh, if you don't qualify for that test, uh, test number two is also part of that box. We'll we'll look at this on the next page. And then down at number line number 10, that's test number three. Um, that describes what that, that third test is. I won't read that because as we go through it, um, it'll make more sense that way. Um, number 12 gets us back to the supporting organizations. And again, we're not um, going through those today, but it's important to know that those are there and that um, uh, certain organizations will qualify as public because they are supporting organizations. So going to this page two of the Schedule A then, um, again, you have this in your materials. Uh, this page is, it's a calculation. So it's looking at, um, if you know we're talking about percentages and those are a fraction. So we're looking at the fraction that has in the numerator, it has um, all of the items that constitute public support for the organization. And in the denominator, all of the items that constitute total support. So you're looking at, okay, everything that I, I'm getting for support for my organization and what percentage of that or what part of that is public support. And that gives me a percentage that tells me whether or not I pass this test. So let's look at the items on this um, on this form in, in section A. And again, um, you can follow either on the, the annotation or the, the actual test is, is described in our outline also. So in the numerator, you can see the types of things that get included. You got give, you, there are gifts, grants, contributions, um, membership fees received, the, and those are probably where most items are going to fall under. Uh, there are some limits on contributions. So a couple of things to point out. Um, a number five, if there are any large contributions from an individual, then that large contribution gets limited to 2% of the overall contributions made uh, to that organization. So you'll fill out this, or this chart gets filled out. 
you can see that there's um, columns for five years. So the calculation uh, in this support test is over a five-year period. That kind of smooths the, the numbers. If you have one year where there's higher amount from an individual person or a another corp or a corporation, um, you have other years that smooth out out that large number. And if you don't have a full five years, then you fill out the years you have. And you'll notice on number 13, it says first five years. And if it's saying, if you don't have a full five years, fill out the numbers and stop here. Um, you'll count um, as having a public charity status uh, until you reach that five-year year time. So um, one other thing I wanna point out in the um, details of this numerator and denominator are the unusual grants. So an unusual grant is excluded from both parts of the calculation. So it's not in the numerator or the denominator, it's just taken out completely. And why do we do that? Again, if you've got, you know, happily an organization, if you get a million dollar grant in one year, depending on the size of your organization, um, the that million dollar grant might push you from public charity status into private foundation status, unless you had a, a way to kind of remove that from the calculation. So excluding unusual grants um, when needed. And then let's go to the bottom part of the form, which is section C, and that tells you um, how you how you actually compute the percentages. So line 16 is actually, is the test number one. It says 33 and a third percent support test. And again, what it's do, what you're doing is dividing your numerator by your denominator and getting the percentage. If it's 33 and a percent, third percent or more, then you qualify as having public support and you check the box and you know that, that um, that's what you're relying on. If you don't qualify this year, but you did qualify last year, you can also check that box. And um, so qualifying one year automatically qualifies you for the next um, year also. So that's test number one. And a lot kind of walk through a lot of details. Um, again, you can uh, see those both in the outline and on, on the Schedule A that we sent out. If you don't meet that 33 and a third percent, you can look to the next um, test, which is also on this page, and that's the 10% facts and circumstances test. So if you don't have 33 and a third, but you have, let's say 15 is the number that you get, then you might be able to use um, the facts and circumstances test. And the idea of this test as well, you didn't quite meet the percentages we want, but maybe you have the characteristics that we want to see for a public charity. So what are those type of characteristics? Uh, <clears throat> you typically would want at least, um, or you'll look at how your organization is organized and operated. Is it organized in a way that really is meant to attract the public, or is it kind of a family organization that really only knows about itself through other family members? And then uh, a number of factors. You don't have to have all of these, but um, if you can describe or point to a number of these, um, that's better for your argument. So the percentage of the public support you have, so again, higher the better. So if you're at 30% for the, the numerator and the denominator, that's better than being right at 10%. The sources of support. So if, again, if, if the support is from a large number of people rather than um, from just a single family member or, or members of a single family, that's better. Uh, taking a look at the governing body of the organization. So if you have trustees or a governing board or um, who are they? Are they people that are, again, from the public or are they just you know a, a small number of donors and um, that's, uh, and they make up the governing body? Um, availability of, of what you do how available is that to the public? So do you have services that you provide to the public? Do you have facilities that you provide to the public? Um, that type of, of activity. And then looking at membership. Again, what type of membership do you have? Is it designed to um, uh, garner a large number of people or is it just a very limited um, with a very specific interest? So all of those things would um, if you're trying to show that you meet this public support test, 
you would go through all of those type of factors and and others that you could use um, that are in the same vein of of being you know organized and operated to attract the public, and you would describe that in the very last page of Schedule A, um, which has a bunch of lines to to put a narrative like that there. So those we've taken we've gone through the first test and the second test. So again, you don't meet both of them. If you fail one, you go to the next and say, okay, I failed that one. Look at the next. Now, the third test is, again, it's on Schedule A. So you go to the next page, page three of Schedule A. And uh, this test is looking at, it's for organizations that have some kind of revenue. So um, it might be, uh, let's see, um, things like uh, museums, ballet, symphony, just think of um, entities like that. And this test, um, again, because we like to make things complicated, this test has two parts. So again, three separate public charity tests. The third one here is um, the one-third support of the revenue test. And this has um, two parts to it, and you have to meet both of them. So the first part is that more than one-third of the support of the organization needs to come from grants, gifts, contributions, membership fees. So again, on, on Schedule A, that's the top part of the, the chart and the, the form. Um, also, you can add to that gross receipts from exempt function income. So again, it would be admission fees if you have a museum or sales of merchandise or performance of services. Um, you do not include in here unrelated business income. So it's activities that are generating revenue for your organization that are related to the exempt purpose of the organization. So all of those go in, again, we're talking about ratios and percentages. So all of those go in the uh, public support part. And then section B, you're looking at the total support. So there you are adding in the unrelated business taxable income, the um, gross investment income, uh, all of the things that are listed in section B. Again, you take out unusual grants. So that is a concept that applies to this test too. So you completely take those out. And um, there's also another provision where if you have um, large receipts, so amounts um, from disqualified persons that, again, are over a certain amount, those get limited also. But you take... Um, you take all of those numbers, so you're looking again, the top part is public support, bottom part is total support, and that percentage gives you, um, you divide the numerator by the denominator and you get a public support percentage. And that's listed here on section C of the form. And then section D is the other test. So again, we're trying to reach 33 and a third. That's similar to that first test we looked at, but here we're looking at also um, you can't have investment income that is um, higher than 33 and a third. Um, so if if you're invest if you're doing these activities and raising money from that, that's great. But if you have a large endowment and you're um, and you have a lot of investment income from that, then you might fail that part of the test where you more than a third of your support comes from there. Um, so the Again, the form is pretty clear on um, reminding us what percentages apply and how you apply the test. Um, so line 19 is the, you can see it says 33 and a third support test. And again, if you meet it in this year, 2023, you check that box. If you didn't, it asks you, did you meet it last year? Again, it's five year. That's why there's five columns. Um, so I know, especially without the form in front of us and me moving the arrow to, to point to that to the places, it can sound complicated and it can kind of get lost in all those numbers and details. Um, but the um, just remember the basic concept is where are the funds coming from for this for this organization? Are they coming from the general public? And am I organized in a way to to attract funds from the general public? Or am I organized in a way that really is just um, uh, a single family or a, a more limited um, population of, of people or, or entities? Um, so those are the, the public support tests. And again, the way to remember them is to go through that Schedule A 
There's also, um, I find that instructions for the Schedule A are pretty plain language. And I say this every time I do a talk that has um, instructions that are relevant, um, that, you know, there's good definitions. It'll, um, again, in plain language, walks you right through it. Um, and if the, and then a caveat, you know, we've gone through it pretty fast. Every time um, you're looking at whether an organization qualifies or not, there's different details that come up and you need to focus on those details. And, you know, we don't have time to, to highlight each of those today, but it's very detail oriented. And so um, remembering that the facts matter in um, not just for the facts and circumstances test, if you're relying on that one, um, uh, but also for the other ones in terms of where your funds are coming from. So let's move on then, and I should be able to get our presentation back. And if, because um, we know I was able to share that earlier, so. And Kelly, you can let me know if you'd like me to share it on my end as well. Okay, and did I, you have the. You got it. All right, so we know this part works. Um, actually, but what I wanna pull up next is a website. So we'll see if that, that works. So um, again, this is just the slide that has the, um, the public support tests and, and which ones they are. Okay, I wanted to show, before we turn it over to Valerie and I um, use up too much of her time, I wanted to highlight two um, websites that also are helpful um, in looking at um, whether or not you have a private foundation. And um, so for the public support test and the chart we just went through, you might be dealing with that if you're setting up an entity or you're filing for a client of yours that is needs to... Um, uh, submit the filings or you're helping them understand um, how they meet the test or, or don't meet the test. Um, but often it, you just need a simpler answer. So um, for example, with the um, donor advised funds um, need to um, uh, distributions from donor advised funds to charities need to be given to public charities, not private foundations. So often we might be looking to see, okay, is this entity a, a um, public charity or private foundation. So one place to look is um, on the IRS website. And I'm going to stop the sharing and try to pull up the IRS website that I have. Let's see if this does better. It says I'm sharing the IRS website. Is that what you see? Yep, I see it, Kelly. Okay, so on the IRS website, there is a section at the very top that says um, charities and nonprofits. So we go there and then from charities and nonprofits search organizations and there's a tax exempt organization search tool and you just keep following that link until you get to this page, which is the tax exempt organization search. And you can see that, right, Valerie? Yes, I can see that. Okay, so it worked. Um, so the the database, it, um, I usually leave it on search all. And just a couple of things here, you can either search by the EIN if you know it, but often you're just searching by an organization's name. Um, and then you enter the organization's name. And, and since the Super Bowl just happened and the Chiefs won, I figured we'd look for uh, Patrick Mahomes Foundation, which is 15 and the Mahomes. And so if we search, that it will think and then it will um some of the things to know if you need to search exactly sometimes if you have a an off word in there it it often will tell you it doesn't exist but it just means you didn't use the exact right name and that can happen especially if an organization goes by a name that's not their legal name um and so here we do have an entity called 15 in the Mahomes Foundation. Um, we can't just assume it's a private foundation, even though foundation's in the name. Um, but what we can do is, is uh, click on it and then we'll get some data about this entity. And the important thing for us is this 
deductibility code. And here it says PC. So that no, that lets us know that this is a public charity. If you click on the question there, it tells you what the codes are for these um, entities. So PC means a public charity. Um, and then the other one you might often see is PFs for private foundation. Um, so there's a similar website to this um, for the uh, at the state level, and I won't um, pull that one up. Um, the nice thing about this um, Massachusetts uh, website is that um, it it's has um, some additional, like it has financial forms that um, are helpful. So the audited financials are are posted there, and um, there are also are in um, organizations like. Um, GuideStar has um, some of the same information, um, but I was, um, it's helpful to go directly to the IRS website. And then the Form 990 is here. And, you know, obviously the most recent one uh, available is 2021. And if we, we won't take the time to do it now, but if we pulled up that Form 990, we could pull up the Schedule A and we could see how um, the 15 in the Mahomes Foundation um, says that they are a public charity. And um, I actually looked at it earlier and, and they filled out the the public charity um, support test for the um, 33 and a third. So just they're getting donations from more than just Patrick Mahomes. They're getting it from um, a number of different places. Um, so let's go back then to our um, our main slide deck and our pictures. And now I've completely lost my space in my materials. I think it's time to turn it over to you, Valerie, but let me. Sure, Kelly. Yeah, if you'd like, I can try to share our PowerPoint here. Would that be helpful? Um, yeah, actually, let's do that. Um, I think I can pull it back up. But since you're talking next, actually, I've, I've got it right here. You've got you it. Okay, to, yeah. um, I assume this worked. Great. Well, thanks, Kelly. Um, I always think you do such a good job of encapsulating these really complicated public support tests into what I think is a pretty easy to understand five minutes. So thanks for that. <laughs> um, and um, and I'll try to kind of, you know, I don't want to race too much through these materials because now we're getting into some a little bit of complicated territory. I hate to break it to you, but the IRS, as Kelly said, always likes to make things a little bit complicated. And um, so I may just be able to touch on some of these rules to start, but I just wanted to give sort of a big picture understanding of why we have these special rules in the first place. What kind of distinguishes a private foundation? I know Kelly, you talked about the, the public support tests, which you know, in many cases are what distinguish a public charity from a, from a private foundation. But there's also this issue of oversight, public oversight. And, and you also mentioned that a little bit earlier on when you talked about you know, publicly run board, diverse board versus maybe family members who are um, closely knit together and, and maybe just don't exercise the same level of oversight. So um, I really like the graphic here. You know, This is sort of the idea of a public charity. You kind of have a, a group of people, different donors, different public contributors who maybe are exercising some oversight over the charity versus private foundations, right? Um, and that's where the second image comes into play, where we really have a variety of rules and restrictions that the IRS imposes, knowing that a private foundation just doesn't have the same level of oversight by the general public. So what is the IRS really worried about here? Um, you know, a variety of things. And um, on a sort of a practical level, I would say, you know, this is sort of day-to-day -day conversations that we have with our clients, um, especially when they're thinking about entity type. You know, one of the conversations that we may have is, you know, do you really want to have family control over your organization? Um, you know, do you, do you want to maintain that level of control? Because in some cases, like Kelly said, you know, there are a variety of public support tests that you can meet. Um, and, and, you know, there may be an intention to fundraise, but at the end of the day, you really may want this to be a family-run organization. And so, um, if, if that's a factor and you really want to keep that family control, then we have to take into account all these different things that the IRS are going to that the IRS is going to scrutinize about the foundation. So this first one, personal benefit, um, this goes to the idea of you know benefiting founders and their families through grants or employment or other other items um, when the funds should really be used for charitable benefits. So that's one primary concern of the IRS. 
The next one that the IRS is worried about is actually something they're currently worried about with donor advised funds as well. Um, but in this case, it's, you know, holding on to charitable assets and just not, you know, expending them to charities, but instead kind of hoarding these assets through the foundation. So you'll see that one of the special rules is geared toward that concept. Another item that they're concerned about is using the private foundation simply to perpetuate a family business. So again, the, the primary goal should be charitable. Um, but you'll see that there are rules about business holdings of foundations um, to ensure that they're not in existence just to perpetuate the family um, LLC or a corporation. Risky investments, um, you know, so this goes to making sure that there will be enough charitable assets in the foundation over a period of time and that it won't be squandered or lost through investments that uh, jeopardize the ability of the foundation to fulfill its charitable purposes. And then lastly, these rules are designed to make sure that the activities stay charitable. I know that sounds obvious, right? But there are a number of sort of technical ways that foundations need to ensure and reassure the IRS that they're doing this. And we can talk about that later on. So like Kelly said, all of this is, is in the code. <laughs> um, and it's nice to just kind of lay out which sections you can find these rules in. Um, this is also summarized in your outline, but we're going to try to be walking through each of these in turn. I'll see how much time I have. Um, but, uh, you know, each of these sections is where these different rules are located. So the IRS, knowing that, you know, people make mistakes and foundation managers make mistakes, they've imposed what I like to call a two-tier system, right? So the first um, amount of tax is typically really just sort of a warning to say, hey, you know, you, you did this thing and it's in violation of the private foundation rules. Um, but then there's the second tier, right? So if you don't cure the error, this is where this 100 to 200% tax typically comes in. And that's designed to be a little bit more punitive and, and the amounts can be very large and can, and can in some cases really diminish the assets of a foundation. So um, it's, again, very important to be aware of these rules if you're a foundation manager or working with foundation clients and just to make everyone aware that they exist and that there is this two-tier um, tax system, which can lead to a little bit more of a punitive effect over time. There are some chances for abatement, and we can go over those a little bit today, um, but they are, are fairly limited. So this one's pretty simple, and I should be able to just breeze through it. Um, there used to be sort of a two-tier tax system for this one, where it would be 2% and then reduced in certain circumstances. And then back in 2019, the law changed. So you ended up with a flat 1.39% tax on net investment income. Um, and so this, this is not really a punitive tax. It's really just a revenue gathering mechanism for the IRS. Um, and so the tax would just be calculated and paid annually along with the foundation's filing of its form 990PF. So just an annual tax, not too high, but just to know that it's there and it's imposed on private foundations, but not, not public charities. So you'll see that's just one of the special rules that we'll be talking about. This is a big one and um, no self-dealing. And I'd like to spend a little bit more time on it because what I'd say is it's one of the the least understand issues that clients come to us with. And it's not, not because of any lack of knowledge on their part, but simply because the rules in many cases are very counterintuitive and very strict. And I'll talk about, you know, there are many exceptions to the rules. And in this case, some of the exceptions are perhaps more important than the rule itself. Um, but some of these rules are so strict that in many cases, we would advise clients sometimes to, to not engage in transactions through a private foundation and sometimes to do it, do it otherwise through a different entity. So I'll talk a little bit about that further. Um, but um, just the idea is, you know, um, the general rule is essentially that a private foundation can't engage in a transaction with a disqualified person. And a disqualified person is, it's a term of art that the IRS uses, and it's very broadly defined. So we'll talk about what that means. Um, but as part of the general rule, you can't engage in these transactions as a private foundation, even if the transaction would be fair and reasonable to the corporation, and even if it benefits the private foundation. So this is actually very different from the rules for public charities. Um, you know, in many cases, a public charity could engage in a transaction with one of its directors if, um, you know, for example, the director is compensated for that transaction at a fair and reasonable standard that's within fair market bounds. But with a private foundation, you have this general prohibition against those kinds of transactions. And we'll talk about kind of the breadth of this and how we kind of carve out some exceptions, which are very important. 
So let me go back to the concept of who is a disqualified person, um, because it's not always what you might think. So the, the obvious ones might be, you know, a trustee or director of the private foundation, um, an officer, you know, president, treasurer, secretary, that kind of person, a manager who has similar powers to those individuals. So that might be a um, CEO or an executive director of the foundation, and then substantial contributors. So those are typically donors who end up contributing more than 2% of the foundation's total contributions if that total is greater than $5,000. Um, so that's another, another category that would constitute a disqualified person and where you can't transact with those individuals. Um, so for example, if you have a founder who's pouring money into the foundation and they're not on the board, right, but they pour in a significant amount of funds, the founder would be a disqualified person with respect to the foundation, and you wouldn't be able to engage in a transaction with them, except under one of these narrow exceptions. Um, so the interesting part is with a disqualified person, it sometimes also will refer to owners of a business or a business itself. So this is where the IRS gets fancy, and they talk about persons being businesses or business owners, right? And um, it would include owners of more than 20% of the voting power of an entity that was a substantial contributor, and corporations or other entities where 35% of the voting power or the profit interest or beneficial interest is owned by disqualified persons. So you can kind of see how widely this extends into business interests. And what this means is you really can't hide behind your business and say, let's transact with the business instead, You know, but I own a large share of it and I'm a director of the foundation. You just can't use that as a shield. And the IRS is very aware of that. So that they make it clear um, about those rules. So what kind of transactions would be prohibited under the self-dealing rules? Um, it, it's a wide variety. So the sale, lease, or exchange of property between the foundation and a disqualified person, the lending of money or extension of credit, the furnishing of goods, services, and facilities. So the list is pretty long. I probably won't have time to go over all of these today, but probably the most important one, and I think the one that comes up most often for, for us and our clients, would be paying compensation or reimbursing expenses for a disqualified person. Um, and this comes up very frequently because we find clients might ask, you know, for example, can I have my daughter, you know, provide investment management services to this private foundation? And the answer, as lawyers always love to say, is, is it depends, right? Um, and that's because, you know, so there is a general prohibition on this based on these rules, uh, but there's a narrow exception. So let's talk about this exception because I think this is, is one of the um, self-dealing rules that comes up most often. So this exception would be for personal services that are both reasonable and necessary to carry out the foundation's exempt purposes, which means that if you fall under this exemption, um, exception, you're not going to be subject to um, self-dealing rules and, and the tax imposed for those under those circumstances. Um, so now going back to the example of, you know, can my daughter provide investment management services to the foundation? Well, you would have to ask, you know, are these reasonable, these services reasonable to carry out the foundation's exempt activities and are they necessary, right? If you have a very tiny foundation um, and, you know, maybe really sophisticated investment services are not necessary or maybe they can be provided at a very low rate. So um, you kind of have to look at, you know, comparable organizations, what's being done in, in other foundations. You'd also have to look at, you know, what, um, individuals are being paid for the same services and how often, you know, your daughter is working and performing these services to make sure that whatever will be offered to her is really within reasonable fair market bounds. Um, but there are a lot of factors that go into this. And, um, you know, because the level of scrutiny is so high as compared to a private foundation, this could potentially be a situation where one might consider compensating the daughter through a different entity. So, you know, perhaps the family has an LLC or they have another business and the daughter is involved. You know, maybe her compensation is is through that entity or for other services and not, not for the ones that are dealing with the foundation. Um, so, you know, really depends on the circumstances, but we find that this exception is, is so narrow that it may be pretty rarely used. Um, so there's so many more things to talk about with self-dealing, but I feel like just because of our time, and I do want to allow a little bit of time for questions in the Q&A, why don't we go to the next major rule? And I do encourage you to, you know, email Kelly or myself after this if you have questions about any of this. So the next rule um, we were going to talk about is the failure to distribute income. Um, so this one is a little bit more clear cut, right? So the idea is that the private foundation has to pay out an amount equal to 5% of its net investment assets in what the IRS calls qualifying distributions. Again, this is a little bit of a term of art. So what's a qualifying distribution? 
um, a variety of things. So it could be a grant to a qualified charity, as Kelly talked about, um, you know, in many cases, private foundations will typically make distributions every year to a variety of public charities. And like she said about the IRS website, they might check that website and they might say, hey, is this a public charity? Let me put in its EIN or its name, and I'm going to confirm that it has that little PC logo right before I make a distribution to it. And then the foundation can typically be pretty assured that this is a, a public charity where they can make a qualifying distribution for that year. So some other examples of what would be qualifying distributions would be necessary or reasonable administrative costs to make those grants that we just talked about, um, or costs to provide direct charitable activities. You know, in some cases, a private foundation may actually have some operating features where they're running charitable programs in addition to making distributions. So some of those costs can count toward this 5%. And then also costs to acquire assets that are used in the private foundation's exempt activities. So all of those are a variety of, of qualifying distributions. Now, um, there are some interesting ways to, to handle this. So let's say a private foundation um, you know, wants to make a grant to a non-public charity and they want it to count toward this 5%. And we'll get to this hopefully a little bit later if we have time um, in, in one of our other rules. There are ways to do this and it's typically called expenditure responsibility. So the idea is there's a little bit more of a vetting process that you have to do for organizations that are not a public charity if you want your private foundation to be able to make a grant to them and have it count as a qualifying distribution. And the process is typically a three-part process. Um, it would involve, you'd make a pre-grant inquiry of the receiving entity. So let's say it's another private foundation, but they're doing some really great charitable program um, where they're working with kids in underserved schools. And you wanna make a grant for the purposes of that program. So you first have to look at what they're doing. Is it in alignment with the organization's purposes and with your foundation's purposes? Um, and you'd have to ask if it's in good financial standing and all of those important questions. Then you would enter into a grant agreement as part of this process where you would ensure that that recipient organization is going to use the funds um, for, for proper charitable purposes and in line with what you agreed to. And then lastly, you're going to ask for a report from that non-charitable organization or, or non-public um, non charity to make sure that they actually use those assets for the purposes that you intended. And so... Um, this is just to say that the 5% could be met in a variety of ways, but it is an important requirement for foundations just to know that it exists um, and you want to think about who you might grant those funds out to and in what manner. I guess, Kelly, we should probably move to the next one, even though there's so much more to talk about here. Um, okay, so really quickly, this is just kind of a fun one, and um, you might be asking, why is there salad dressing on this slide? <laughs> um, so I'll get, I'll get into that, but first let me lay out the, the general rule for excess business holdings. So I think you recall one of the things we talked about that the IRS was a little bit concerned with was using a private foundation to essentially be the, the holder of a family business to perpetuate it into the future without really serving other charitable purposes. Um, so the IRS does have special rules about business holdings of foundations for this reason. And the rule is that a private foundation is generally not allowed to control any business. And it also can't hold certain ownership shares in a business, particularly can't hold greater than a 20% ownership share um, in a business. And so um, there are a variety of ways in which ownership is calculated. And I encourage you to kind of look at your outline for that just because we have limited time, um, but there is a little bit more detail there for you as to how that would be calculated. But just know that the, the limitation on business holdings is pretty broad in that it includes corporations, partnerships, joint ventures, and unincorporated enterprises. So they try to make it as broad as possible. So let's talk about some of the exceptions. And this is again, where this Newman's own dressing is going to come into play. Um, a private foundation can hold up to 35% of a business if effective control of the business is not held by disqualified persons. And again, this is the same definition of disqualified persons that we saw earlier, directors, officers, substantial contributors, et cetera. Um, and so the IRS defines effective control by saying that this would be direct or indirect power over the direction or management or the policies of the business. Um, so that's that's an idea of, you know, one of the exceptions. Another one is just kind of de minimis ownership. So if the ownership interest is 2% or less, it doesn't really matter um, what the ownership interest of the disqualified persons is. That's not going to count as an excess business holding. So um, and then um, let's, I guess, skip to the Newman's own exception, because this one is really interesting. So um, let me just give the backstory um, about this. So um, many of you know Paul Newman, you know, famous actor. 
And um, he founded his business back in 1993, and the goal was to distribute 100% of the earning of the profits to charity, um, which was a great ambition, right? Um, and I think the IRS really wanted to support endeavors like this. And so when he died in 2008, and he left his company to his private foundation, of course, that left them with excess business holdings, which often happens, you know, someone passes away, and in their estate plan, family business is left to a foundation, and you're left with this, this business holding. Um, so in 2013, they asked for an extension on disposing of this interest because there's an IRS rule if you know if you dispose of the interest in a certain time, you won't be subject to excess taxes for for the excess business holding. So so they tried to do that, but throughout this process, the IRS amazingly decided to adopt a new provision of the code specifically to deal with the situation because they really wanted to support this kind of endeavor. And um, they inserted a brand new code section, which was IRS section 4943G. So that's where you can find this Newman's own exception. And under this new section, uh, the IRS essentially decided there would be no excise tax under the following circumstances. So that would be if the business is owned by the foundation 100% by gift or bequest, as happened here with Paul Newman leaving, leaving his business um, to the foundation. Um, and then also all the profits of the business would have to go to charity, as was the case here. And then finally, uh, the business would have to be operated independently. And that kind of goes to this independent board oversight over the business, um, meaning that the board shouldn't be controlled by family members. Again, that's one of the things that the, the IRS is concerned with. So because of this exception, we have a really great rule now where you can give your business 100% to a foundation. And if you're, you're distributing the profits to charity and meet these other rules, you're not going to be subject to this particular um, excise tax. So I really kind of raced through this. I know we're running out of time. We've got three minutes left. Let me just touch very, very briefly on jeopardizing investments. Um, Kelly put this wonderful slide of cards in here, which I always appreciate it um, because it really goes to the idea of gambling. And I think it's a great image. Really, you just don't want to be gambling with the, the funds um, and assets of the foundation. And so, you know, all of these investments that a foundation manager may make are subject to prudent investor standards. Um, and the IRS has a little bit of an antiquated view as to, um, in many ways, what is a, a jeopardizing investment, but it would be things like, you know, purchasing puts, calls, and straddles, um, you know, and other ty types of very speculative investments, such as purchasing oils and oil and gas wells and that kind of thing. Um, but in an updated language, you know, we're sub still subject to these rules. So it's really thinking about, you know, what would a prudent investor do under like circumstances when you're looking at different investment opportunities? In many cases, it's about diversification of the portfolio. So you're really not subject to um, particularly risky investments, particularly in small, maybe family-held businesses. Um, so um, that was a quick summary, you know, taxable expenditures in my last minute. Um, so three great images here. Um, first one is, is a ballot box, right? Um, because when you have a private foundation, you are really not supposed to be involved in voter registration drives, supporting particular candidates. All of that is kind of off the table for private foundations. Now, in contrast, Public uh, charities can do a little bit of what we call lobbying. They are also restricted in many ways, um, but the rules for private foundations um, are, are, are also very strict. And essentially, if you do one of these activities, um, you know, it's going to count as a, a taxable expenditure. Um, I want to cover the last one because I think that one is particularly important and it has to do with grants to individuals. Um, so the general rule is that a private foundation can't make grants to individuals except under particular circumstances, but there are a wide variety of exceptions. One of those is through pre-approved grant procedures um, for grants for um, travel study or similar purposes. And we see this all the time with clients. You know, a private foundation client may come to me and say, hey, I have a private foundation and I really wanna run a scholarship program, is that okay? And the answer is yes, but, you have to seek pre-approval for those procedures. And in many cases, we've seen private foundations come to us, they haven't sought pre-approval and they have to go through a whole other process, an IRS application called the miscellaneous determination to seek pre-approval for their scholarship procedures. So my suggestion for any foundations who you know, want to form a scholarship program is to really seek that um, pre-approval at the outset. You can do that through the Form 1023 IRS application for exemption. And that's just part of what you would do through that application process. So it's exactly four o'clock. I don't want to run over anyone's time. And I don't think we covered everything we wanted to today. But what I'd say is, you know, I'm sure you learned a little bit of the basics. And um, thank you again to, to Kelly 
um, for the introduction and great part of her presentation. And we did want to leave our contact information knowing that maybe we didn't get to anything in the Q&A, but always happy, um, especially on, on our end, and I'm sure Kelly is as well, to field questions um, about anything related to private foundations. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it looks like we don't have any written questions here, but if, um, as Valerie said, if um, any of you have uh, questions you want to contact us, that's, um, we're open to that and, and would be happy to hear from you. Thanks for joining us today and um, have a good Valentine's Day. Thanks, everyone. The BBA is Boston's largest legal network built on justice, community, education, and inclusion. Take advantage of our exclusive Express membership offer and save 50% off BBA membership through August 31st, 2024. Enjoy the full benefits of BBA membership and take advantage of BBA programs and events, discounts on services, access to the full Learn Online library, and much more. This special offer is only available through March 15, 2024. Use code EXPRESS50 at checkout.